Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focused Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going? Uh, it's going well. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else. If this is the first time you are tuning in with us, be sure to check out all of our other content on the internet. Write about stocks at focuscompounding.com, manage capital at Focus Compounding Capital Management. I tweet about stocks at Focused Compound on Twitter. And then, of course, we have our lovely podcast, Focus Compounding on Spotify and the podcast app on iOS devices. So today's podcast, we are going to um, uh, have our free form podcast where we talk about a bunch of different topics. Um, if you want us to go over anything um, uh, specifically, be sure to DM them to me on Twitter, or you could email me info at focuscompound.com. Uh, this is where we like to take questions from listeners and really just talk a little bit more about stuff that's going on in the market, um, in the economy, in the news, etc. So, um, Jamie Diamond's annual letter. Yeah. 66 pages. Was it? It was a book. Okay. It was very long. Yeah. Would you like, did you like it? That was great. Yeah. Good. That was very yeah. great. Um, good read. I like this one sentence from there. To be healthy and vibrant, a company must do many things well and must do a great job for customers, attract, develop, and retain talented employees, and serve its communities. Mm -hmm. I like that a lot. Big Jamie Diamond fans. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you have any thoughts on it? Um... Not really. He talked a little bit about um, what things would be like the next few years in terms of um, expansion of credit and things like that, and talked about why they might not have been, uh, why there might not have been um, growth in the past, uh, despite the monetary policy that there was in the last ten years or so. Specifically talking about banks and how much they were lending and those sorts of things. And I thought that part made sense. Did you get the impression it is very bullish on the economy? Um. Yes. I did too. Remember his annual letter last year was very mm -hmm. depressing, I guess you could say. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I got the feeling he expects credit to expand. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. Um, Lee Lu at Columbia Business School. I did not see this. Did not see this. Yeah. Yeah. So I tweeted out last Friday, he was speaking with Bruce Greenwald on like a Zoom, you know, uh, conference thing and I actually I'll put the link in the description if you want to watch it it was uh, it was high level I would say okay. a lot of people were I think kind of disappointed Bruce Greenwald would press a lot to give him real life examples of even nothing that he owns today but right. in the past I mean, he's been investing for a very long time and he just did not he did not budge mm. he did not give him really anything but um, it was uh, it was so good list good to listen to but I did. I do wish he gave more specific, more specific examples. Yeah, I mean Buffett and Munger. They don't talk about anything they own today, right. but they will talk about situations in the past. And I do think that's generally a good policy to follow. Like the Duck Club. The Duck Club. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah, they Tell do give. Story. <laughs> I don't really know what that story is exactly that he was explaining. So that they accidentally it. shot 
like oh shotgun. that they basically that they that it was actually oil producing and stuff the yeah. investment yeah mm-hmm. but i mean if i remember right that was a thing where it was actually a, the security was actually a club related thing so it was a limited number of shares that had been in it mm-hmm. i think that's right yeah but anyway that i just meant a very obscure early buffett investment and they talked about it yeah uh-huh so he does give specifics yeah now my favorite story is actually about with lehman when he okay. lehman brothers wanted to do a deal with him yeah and he said okay well you know send me whatever you have or something like that i think he was he was in a hotel room or something along those lines okay and um he said he never heard back from lehman and then like a year or so later maybe a couple years later he was on a plane and his daughter Susie, right was going through his phone or something like that and saw they had a voicemail and there was a voicemail from Lehman mm-hmm. Brothers saying, you know, whatever it was. And he made a joke about it at a conference once. He's like, so if you know why Lehman failed, it was because of me. Yeah. Yeah. You'd like uh, in a book I was reading about, um, what's it called? Uh, was it the bank called Security Pacific? Something like that. Um, the, it, anyway, it's a book about that bank. And at one part, they're trying to get a merger going with Wells Fargo. And um, they've, the Wells Fargo CEO goes very far with it, but decides not to do it. And later, the author finds out, who was trying to sell his bank to him, that um, the reason was he had spoken to Buffett. And the his bank was unable to give up-to-date information reconciling all their swaps, um, which was information requested by Wells Fargo. And so uh, he relates a story that you know, years later, the CEO of Wells Fargo told him that he talked to Buffett and Buffett's answer was, well, you know, when you find one cockroach, there's usually more than one in the kitchen, you know, and you're going to find that you buy this, you know, that you let one cockroach in and you're going to end up with an army of roaches, you know, it's not necessarily telling him don't do the deal, but, um, this author felt that the reason why the merger didn't happen with Wells Fargo was exactly that. Cause at that point, Buffett was a 10% owner and stuff. And he's used that, one, there's never just one cockroach in the kitchen thing. Many times he said that, but it was interesting um, having this particular story that obviously he was talking about that was someone else. Yeah. Hmm. And I didn't know that exactly that. That's why that merger didn't happen. I don't think I'd ever read that in any book that, um, that Buffett definitely said that in that story. Yeah. That's very interesting. Um, so we've been talking about, we've talked about railroader Hunter Harrison a few okay. times on this podcast and somebody wrote in saying, I just read the book. How do you think about it in relation to finding future investments? He said, do you find similar leaders with his focus slash determination? Hunter Harrison, his style. Um, If you want to feel free to use this question on your podcast, do it. But he was just asking like when you're looking in small cap land in general, right? Specifically in small cap land. How do you sort of think about that? Like when you're reading all these books, right? And you're looking Mm -hmm. to apply to real life situations in the present. Right. How do you do that? The psychology of the people involved and certain lessons I can get take from that. I mean, when I read the Kindle, I highlight certain things. And a lot of things I highlight apply to different things. The big lesson that I would take away from that book, the Hunter Harrison book and the E.H. Chairman, I read a couple books on him, uh, which, you know, goes back 100 years earlier, is uh, the railroad industry was very uh, accepting of very high unnecessary expenses and not willing to do everything it took to increase their operating performance. Um, and he repeated after one after another after another, a place they went to. And you see that all the time in uh, different business things. Um, the actual economics of railroads 
as we've talked about before, when you go higher up the income statement, their bargaining power and stuff with customers and all that kind of thing, it's a regulated industry that way, is really strong. But sometimes the operations are so poor and they're not willing to turn things around um, and force that on themselves. And so I think it can be helpful to look at specific businesses where there's the potential to capture a lot of profit, but instead it's being wasted, basically. And that's what the situation was there. I've kind of talked about some of those where you see that there's a lot of gross profit there, but there isn't necessarily a lot of um, uh, operating profit. We've mentioned specifically on this podcast, Village Supermarket, Tandy Leather, things like that. If those businesses had someone who you felt was a driven, cost-cutting, obsessed person with those sorts of things who had some sort of insight into those businesses, say a retail business or something like that, um, with a determination that they could get best in class in those kinds of operating expenses, then yeah, I mean, you would. I think you'd be surprised at how much earning power they might really have, just like they would with railroads. Um, and people, other people, always tell you it can't be done, and you know those sorts of things. How do you think they get to that point of? just being so bloated like that. I don't know. I mean, I know it's easy when times are good. We've talked about that a lot in the podcast. It's not a competitive industry. I think the same thing happens in banking. And like I said, to some extent insurance and stuff, um, they, not that it's not competitive, but it, it won't happen in retail. Um, I mean, it's happened with the things I'm talking about to such a lesser extent village and tandy and all of those things uh, to such a lesser extent than what we're talking about with railroads um but i do feel that it happens in industries where there isn't um an ability to take from someone else on price that much so i think in businesses where you can take from the guy down the street based on price there tends to be a much higher degree of efficiency mm -hmm. um but i think that in other industries there isn't um, so like media things are another good example because you can't do that. You can't take from someone else on price. And so a TV station can cost twice as much under one order to run as under another. You see that with news organizations in different countries and things like that. There's some that cost a lot and, and they're not really accomplishing anything more than, than somebody else. Um, so just lots of inefficiencies that way. Sure. But in businesses where there's real cost competition, real price competition, I think that you're usually pretty efficient. I mean, look at this. So if you're watching on YouTube right now, I have QuickFS up for uh, Canadian Pacific. And in 2011, they did $5 billion in revenue. In 2020, they did $6 billion, which is only a 2% 10-year CAGR. But if you look at the operating margin, in 2011, it was 19.6. And last year, it was 44.3. Mm-hmm. Totally fixed costs and stuff like that. You know, you could just think about what the business is. We've talked about this before with things. That's why I think it's important to look at the core of what the business really is, what costs go up over time and what don't. Um, I mean, we've talked in the past, I mentioned things, whether they're FICO, Dun & Bradstreet, IMS Health, things like that. Like there's the potential to make a lot more money without really growing revenue because of what the core is of what you do isn't really providing a lot of additional um, services that you have to have. Um, this would also be true if this was, you know, uh, a, um, I mean, it's a location based thing, mm -hmm. you know, it, you already have the system in place. Um, and so it's a question of how much you can put through that network basically. I mean, if you want to compare it, it's like a tangible example, an old economy example 
of the sort of things people talk about with, you know, the social media and network things online and all of that, their network effects and everything they talk about with um, online stuff. That's better because it has no capital, but this is a capital heavy version of that. But the expense side, you have tremendous operating leverage possible. Um, the downside is if revenue drops a lot, people always worry about that, taking that into account. But what they don't realize is when you have really big operating leverage like that, you can reduce fixed costs. And fixed costs are often highly, um, they're not really as necessary. Um, they're more of a choice, usually, how you run your organization. Now, over time, it can be hard to switch from one approach to another. But it's like we were talking about with Geico, with their distribution method versus agents. There's a lot more discretion usually in fixed costs in the long run as a culture. And so you can run two companies differently in terms of fixed costs. The variable costs, not so much, you know? Mm -hmm. So when you see a business that you're looking at and it buys a lot of commodities and then turns them into some intermediate good or whatever, um, how they run the plant is really up to them and can be different from other companies. But how much it costs to buy the product and where they are in terms of location and things like that for it and how much it would cost to ship it in and ship it out and all that, those are things that are hard for them to fix and for anyone to get around. The, you know, abilities to improve operations and stuff is more, you know, on the fixed line. Yeah, in 2011, um, uh, Canadian Pacific had a market cap, call it 10 or 11 billion, 10 to 11 billion, and today it's 56 billion. Yeah, and, 50 billion, sorry. and it's not unique that way. I mean, I remember looking at Kansas City Southern, um, you know, we're going back like 15 years and stuff first looking at it, not a very successful looking business, but people were starting to see, well, maybe things are changing for railroads and all that. And eventually they were kind of the most marginal one. And now, you know, they've gotten a much higher valuation and getting bought out and everything. So. I mean, the return on equity too went from 12% to 34%. Yeah. Crazy. But I mean, because what was the growth in assets over time, right? It was a uh, 10 year K is 3%. Right. So you grew assets by 3% while you grew earnings per share by 13%. Mm-hmm. So that's the recipe for how you do those sorts of things. But it's really just a question of whether you can get more efficient with the same stuff you already have, which is what we're talking about with all of these businesses. If you had to build out the railroad to get the growth, that wouldn't work. These weren't great businesses when they first built them, mm-hmm. no, you know, sure, in yeah. the high growth period. So. Yeah, when it's like when Buffett invested in uh, BNSF, right? It's like the typical Buffett um, investment. They, the industry started consolidating right. a little bit more. It wasn't in that crazy growth phase anymore. Yeah, same thing. He was trying to do much the same thing. I think in airlines, I was looking at the same sort of opportunity there. Do you think it also? I guess to expand on that, it comes down to the operator, especially in micro cap and small cap land. How they're incentivized. Oh, it's much easier to matter. I mean, and people pay a lot more attention to the Jamie Diamonds of the world, but the truth is Jamie Diamond can have much less impact on his bank than someone at a much smaller bank. Mm -hmm. Now, he tries. From every book that I've read about him and stuff, he doesn't pay any attention to the hierarchy there and is willing to go and talk to someone many levels down to get the information that he wants. Um, so, So he gets really into the details that way instead of having summaries of those sorts of things. So... You know, I think that's unusual. Most people don't do that. They're much more respectful of the um, of the organization chart. And so they're getting information 
they only know about branch operations and stuff from the head of that talking to them about it, doing a pr presentation on it, saying here are the numbers and stuff of, you know, this is our customer satisfaction. This is how much the wait time is for these things and stuff. And um, at a smaller bank, it would be easier. At a small organization of any kind. Management matters a lot more at a very small organization than a very big organization. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But when you bring someone in and give them a specific mandate to do something, I do think that's different. You kind of asked about that once before about like, what if you bring a CEO to turn something around? That can be really effective because the company's admitting we have a problem and we are making you the dictator to do whatever you need to do. And people are seriously motivated to do it. So a crisis sort of thing can cause management to be more important then. Otherwise, I don't think they could get through many of the changes that they would want to get through. What makes a good CEO at a small company? Um, I mean, I think we've said the cost of um, keeping costs low, um, being smart about capital allocation, right? Those are the, I would say, the two most important things. And then the other one is probably, um, I mean, for me, probably the most important thing is setting up some way, uh, I don't know, you know, it depends on whether you're a small organization or a big one, to get bad news very quickly and then to act on it. The biggest danger is inertia. Well, there's two kinds of danger. Well, there's maybe there's three. Um, one is executives generally lack information, especially bad information, to understand what's really going on. They may get numbers and not soft sort of information. So they really can believe things that are not true. So um, like I was reading a book about a bank that was involved with the California real estate bust, and he's getting information from economists. And he gets told by someone, I've talked to real estate brokers. And it's like, oh, who cares what the real estate brokers have because I got these things prepared by my economists, my team of economists, you know. So he's removed himself really far from, and they're lending to back real estate development. You'd mm -hmm. think that they would be in touch with real estate brokers on that. It's a very important soft sign of what's happening in the market. But you get further removed from that when you're a bank that's that big. It's one of the biggest banks in America at the time. So um, one, you lack the information that way, right? So that's a really big problem. Two, oh, you avoid conflict. So you avoid actually having the conversation, I guess. And then three is the inertia of you say you want something done and it never gets done. So the Jamie Dimon thing on the follow-up, it's clear that he says he wants something done. He follows up on it and actually makes sure that it's done. Mm -hmm. Many times at companies, someone, in fact, did say do this and it was never done. Um, that's very common or expressed in some way. You know, you it's very common that someone expressed a desire to get out of this kind of cutback or exposure in this thing. This is serious cutback or whatever. The other person didn't really hear this is serious and kind of heard don't buy as much of this kind of, you know, whatever. And then eventually they're horrified to find out that um, they're just as exposed as they were three months ago or whatever when they warned them not to do that. So, you know, following up on that and whatever. And, you know, like giving that example, if that was, say, an investment bank, right? So it seems like Goldman Sachs has much more of a process for doing that than some other places of reviewing individual um, things and following up on them to get them done. Mm -hmm. And some of that is having someone directly from the top talk to you. So it sounds like very hierarchical. Like it's, you know, it comes from if there's many different lines to get to somebody. Maybe. I mean, Goldman, I knew someone who worked for Goldman and he got a call from the top person at Goldman and said, you're taking the most risk of anyone in the firm today, so you better know what you're doing. <laughs> so, so I mean, so they have, so obviously they have some awareness of the very top risk positions mm -hmm. there at any given day. 
and they don't normally review those individual things. But I mean, I was talking to someone else recently and they were asking about loan things and stuff at a, a bank. And one thing that concerned me a little bit is the bank kept referring over and over again to me, at least as much as any bank that I've seen of that they're assessing risks on a pool basis and stuff, which is fine. A lot of banks do that. All the loans that are of a certain kind are put together until the point at which that loan doesn't seem to have the same characteristics and then it's broken out and gets reserved differently. But um, I was a little concerned that there wasn't enough attention maybe being paid to specific things so that the, the um, individual loans that were a problem wouldn't be seen by top management fast enough and you might say, what does it matter about an individual loan? But that kind of helps you see a pattern and start worrying about other loans that way. Mm -hmm. It really is a helpful sign, I think, to see um, those individual problems that you might have. Uh, and, you know, like I said, with the Jamie Dimon thing, it's a good example is, you know, if you have the specific data on something, then you tell people to do it. Um, that, like, he, you know, thought that the wait time... <laughs> when he took over a bank early on um, for calls being answered was crazy because he asked for the actual number. And they said something like, you know, at first they probably would say like, oh, well, you know, we're, we've improved over last year by, you know, 10% or whatever. And we're, we're getting to be, we're almost in line with other people. So he said, you know, but what he asked was specifically, what is the number? How long? Mm -hmm. And they said 40 seconds before he answered the phone. And he said 40 seconds, you know, Everyone hangs up after 40 seconds. And then <laughs> yeah. if they do, and like you wonder why your turnover in your call centers is so high. If people are, the if our employees are getting people so after angry. they've been waiting 40 seconds, they're just having people yell at them all mm -hmm. day, you know. But getting that specific number. And that sounds silly, but at giant organizations, the CEO often does not have any uh, idea of something that specific. Mm -hmm. Because it's not put in, um, I mean, they might know that we've improved by whatever percent and stuff, but they really may not know how long it takes to answer a call in their call centers. The, I've heard a story about him too when they, I don't know if they merged with another bank or something like that, but they, the phones in the offices were, I don't even know the amount, but just throwing numbers out there. It was like, oh, we're paying $100 a month. I know we could get 60 or $70 a month here. And he's right. the one that called it up, made the change and implemented it within the office. Yeah, and the thing CEOs is- CEOs don't do that. The thing that's good about that is probably if you do that a few times, you yeah. don't have to do it anymore because other people will understand that's, that the that's what they're supposed to do. Yeah. But like what I'm talking about with the inertia thing that you see a lot is very often people, if you talk to them in a company, know kind of what the problems might be and what things should be done, but they don't really do them. A lot of times people don't feel it's their responsibility to do it. So there's not individual areas of responsibility. That's clearly they have the um, mandate to do it that they might feel like they have to discuss with other people to do this and especially to push along something totally new unless someone tells them that they can do it. Um, a lot of things with cost are that way. Mm -hmm. You know, you read different books about companies and whatever you see it sometimes and everyone's like, yeah, we're probably spending too much on that. I need to look at that, but no one looks at it and says, let's try to figure out how we can cut it out. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, next question, what percentage hit rate do you expect on your investments? Basically, what is the on base rate you either target or expect from ideas you actually buy? I'm specifically not asking about slugging percentage, even though that's the key metric. Yeah. Slugging percentage is the key metric, but I'd say high. That's the reason why we don't buy things as much as other people is because we kind of maybe ir irrationally, you know, we overdo it. Maybe it, try to find things that are not going to go down. Uh, in the long run and will go up. Now, whether they keep up with the market for a period of time, I don't know. 
but we do try much more to have an extremely high um, hit rate, I guess you could say, or, you know, mm-hmm. um, that's not necessarily the smartest way to do it. Maybe it's better to strike out more and hit more home runs, you know. Does Jeff have an opinion on venture capitalist investing? I've been getting a lot of questions about this. And and then this uh, person used the example. Charlie Munger did a venture capital-like investment with BYD and has done very well. And he said he wouldn't sell despite it now trading at, quote, nosebleed prices. Yeah, no, I don't. Um, I mean, no, definitely not. But we do look at industries and say what industries might we want to be in and you know those sorts of things so i mean we like growth but um basically we just don't invest in stuff that isn't profitable and hasn't been profitable for a little while um BYD is kind of somewhere in between maybe it's more of like a real phil fisher venture type thing than like true venture capitalism when they bought into it but it's way outside of what buffett would do that's absolutely true it's betting on the person basically the management mm-hmm um, investing overseas. Have okay. you looked at any companies overseas recently? Yes. This has been my, one of my biggest disappointments since we started the fund and since we started manager accounts and things is inability to find things that I like in the rest of the world. I think it'd be really good to do it and I've not had success with it. Why so, do you think that is? Uh, my own biases, lack of, uh, information network, lack of connections, you know, with people in other countries um yeah because i have here uh lessons investing in companies in different countries how do you handicap different cultures risks accounting legal etc yeah i would say that that's um been the problem that i've had now i think maybe also some of it is the kind of investments that i look for if you're just looking for value quantitative value then you could go to the rest of the world to buy things. I think you won't have any problem. But if you're looking for uh, a business is going to generate much of your return over time that you hope to hold for a while, um, I think that's harder. And you'll notice that Buffett's done very, very little investing in the rest of the world. Whereas more quantitative value investors haven't had a problem going around the world. And I'd say that's true. I mean, on a percentage basis, some of the best returns have come from like Japan. Um, and not just net nets. There have been some other things too. But things like net nets, extreme value, extreme discrepancies in pricing. Um, and I would like to find more because it would be good because the U.S. is so picked over with people looking for different kinds of companies and opportunities. Um, and you do sometimes find things that are cheaper in other countries. So I don't want to be blinded to the possibility of things being cheaper in some other country and buy the thing in the U.S. Um, we do in accounts I manage own one thing in the U.K., that's a car dealer. I think car dealers in the UK are cheaper than the US. And that's been a thing generally. But I think that particularly since, you know, when Brexit uh, vote happened and stuff like that, they seem to trade way out of line with the American peers. And uh, so I just, it would be hard to justify buying American car dealers at the prices they were trading at when you could get a UK one. But that's just an example of that. Um, I don't, I mean, I would prefer to buy an American one. I could understand it better, but the the price differential is just so big that we ended up buying a UK one. What's the largest overseas investment Buffett has made? Um, well, I mean, technically probably some pharmaceutical company. I can't remember right now because there's some in Europe and he probably bought one of them, but, um, it would be Guinness mm. and then Iscar. I was thinking his car. Yeah. And then they did also buy Posco. 
which I don't think was a big hit. But the biggest profit probably was PetroChina. Uh, yeah. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Because he made several times his money and it ended up selling for, you know, pretty big amounts. So. Whatever happened to Guinness? Whatever happened to it? Uh, yeah, I, mean, I mean, he sold, sold it. Yeah, no. Yeah. Do you know when he sold it? Nope. I don't know any of the details about the buying and selling of stuff. There was just a lot of things written about it back then. So people talked about that. Um, I, I never know if it was a very big position for him um, or how long he held it for. I don't think it was significant. Huh. Interesting. Um, uh, so have you looked at any uh, overseas companies recently then? Yeah. I mean, I keep looking at them. I've talked about some on here before. Um, do you just run screens? How do you typically find them? No, it's very hard to run screens Yeah, on foreign stocks. The data is not very good. I do have one thing that I use for data for the UK, and that's fine. Um, it's a pretty big market. So if you just focus on UK, Japan, things like that, it would be fine. I talk to people in different countries. Um, part of it may be that. I, I do think part of it is that. I think that the people I know in other countries have shifted over time to being more interested in um, higher growth, more speculative sorts of things. And so to some extent, I haven't had the um, idea flow, you want to call it, of things that match up more with what I'm interested in. I don't know a lot of people in other countries. I know many more value investors in the U.S. who are more old school than uh, in the rest of the world. And so that is part of the problem, I would say, yeah. Do you find it challenging when you're looking at a company to understand, like, for example, in, in uh, the United States, right? You could understand how dominant Starbucks is. You see them on every single corner. No, I mean, I was going to write up Greg's for the UK. Uh, we didn't do? get the chance to do it. They went shooting up. Eh, it has a similarity to Starbucks. I mean, it isn't like that. It's If you want to think, what could I compare it to in the US? Take Subway and take Starbucks, put them together. So they sell sandwiches in Starbucks? <laughs> Coffee? No, they, <laughs> I mean, so, so something like that. Yeah, they, they sell some products actually that aren't popular in the US, for instance, because of uh, differences in what people like to eat mm -hmm. uh, in the two countries and, and some things like that. But convenient, yeah. A small format, uh, habitual use, yeah. The stock shot up a lot before we were able to put out a report on it. It was one of the ones we were not happy about that. But I thought it was a really good opportunity. Uh, like, you know, we had that question about on base percentage or whatever. I thought that Greg's would be a high one um, that way. I mean, what had happened with Greg's is um, the uh, it had many, many years of really good results. You could look. I was looking at like 20-year results for it. Mm -hmm. And then it uh, had a big contraction in the operating margin. And I figured the operating margin would go back to where it was before. And the reason I figured that is I looked at data on um, – what I could tell of how many people I thought were walking near their, their locations and stuff, because they have things in the UK where they talk about uh, traffic to high streets, which is their return for like main street in the U S and uh, things like that. There's not as much of a mall culture and thing there at all. So um, I just felt that the actual traffic near Greg's locations had dropped so much that the same store sales declines that everyone was writing about as being because of big shifts in societal interest in the kinds of foods they were serving and stuff um, was actually due more to the recession and people not being near them and everything. And, uh, and then also I figured looking at lots of other food things that if there is such a shift, usually they can make it themselves too. So, you know, if people decide I don't want to eat burger or something, McDonald's serves more salad and more chicken and they sell just as much stuff. Um, it's not like, uh, rocket science, you know, 
Um, and it's not usually your unique food that's attracting people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a habit that people have over time. You know, uh, Starbucks has actually changed plenty over the years. You know, it's not just exactly the same thing, but it still retained many of the same customers. Mm. This is an interesting question. It kind of reminds me of a little bit of when we we're talking about Geico and Buffett mm-hmm. saying that he could basically lose everything in the investment tomorrow. Somebody asked, what investing mistakes are you willing to make? In other words, the misjudgment or pre-mortem section of an investment thesis, asking about the fund's general comfort level with certain risks, also asking about how an individual investor should think about it for themselves. Yeah, so I'm willing to take less risks with the fund than I would be with my personal money. So I don't invest personally um, because I've said that I want to do that because it would take distract from investing with the fund and stuff. But people have asked that sometimes and I would make investments personally that I would never suggest other people make and I would never make in a fund or something. Like just recently I was looking at some stock, looked into it a lot. Actually not a stock, it's a warrants. I mean, I was looking at the stock too, but the warrants were more attractive. And um, I looked at it a lot and I decided I'm going to stop looking at it because we're not going to buy something like this for the fund. But would I have bought a lot of it for myself? Yeah, probably. Because I don't mind if they go to zero. Was it just not trading at like parity with the stock or? I felt that you were being offered warrants at a price that was similar to what a company would lend, a bank would lend to this company at, but it's tied 100% to oil as a commodity. But producing, currently producing wells at the percentage that you were getting it versus the value of those wells was very similar to what a um, bank would be willing to lend up to. Now, the bank would be taking some risk, but you're getting warrants in it for that amount. And generally, if you can take, uh, if you can get an equity-like security with the kind of protection that you would get in a, a loan, in a debt situation, it works out really well. It's a bet that you should take. But what I'm saying is that's like being having something that you know is an insurance policy that's priced wrong or whatever. People ask like, well, doesn't insurer have to take, how can insurer take one of these risks? Doesn't it have to take 20 or something? To know it'll work out, it has to take a lot. Like that's all point of life insurance. Sure, yeah. But Berkshire writes one of a kind policies that it might lose money on. And personally, I wouldn't have any problem doing that because it would not bother me at all. Here's the thing. It does not bother me at all if that goes to zero because oil prices decline to $30. Cause Oil prices, to me, I mean, from what I looked at before, it looks like a fairly, eh, this is kind of normal at where oil prices are right now. So I don't know what will happen. I don't have any predictions, but long run in terms of real prices of oil versus what I would expect, it's in a range that's pretty much what you'd expect, around $50, right? So it's, a, you know, it's, you know, a bit over that. But mm-hmm. what I'm saying is $30 would be noticeable, $80 would be noticeable, where it is now is not sure. it means the market yeah. price is in line with anything could happen you know and uh so for that reason given how long the warrants are and everything i, I would have looked at it to buy it for myself but i wouldn't um specifically for like the fund or something and there are other things like that where i'd be willing to buy stuff where it might go to zero certainly i would be willing to do that because to me it doesn't bother me at all merger arbitrage is a good example of that it does not bother me at all uh you buy cambria and the deal falls through and it drops immediately to 60 pence. I don't 
care because to me, I just look at it before the fact and say, did that make sense? And if I repeat this a hundred times in these sorts of deals, will I make money? Mm -hmm. And I think not only would you make money, I think you'd make pretty high amounts. I think you might make 20, 30% on leveraged annualized returns if you kept doing deals like that all the time. You don't know when you'll find them. You don't know when it'll happen. But same things with like the warrants. Um, if you just keep doing things like that. So it doesn't bother me. And it shouldn't bother someone literally, you know, like, like with Berkshire at an insurance company. If someone says, oh, we lost a huge amount of money, they should go back and look and say, did you price it right? Mm -hmm. You know? There's nothing wrong with writing insurance that was a, for a pandemic. And then, oh, a pandemic happened, yeah. you know? Uh -huh. I mean, that's fine. That's what you do. That's what you're in the business to do. Mm -hmm. And so I would be fine with that with investing things all the time, personally, but would not for um, for other investors and for the fund. I would also be willing to be more concentrated. Um, I've talked about that before. I want to have a problem with owning only a, f uh, a few stocks. Uh, personally, I'd be very happy buying one stock a year and holding on to it. Um, but that's not going to work for something like a fund or for managed accounts. And so it is hard when you first get started to buy enough, but not to buy too quickly. That's always the problem. Everyone wants to start fully invested from the beginning. And mm -hmm. that's always by far the hardest part. Um, so, which is different from having your own income and, and buying things that way. Have you ever looked at bonds or anything recently? Yeah. Companies. Um, so bonds are pretty hard. I would say bonds, it's hard to get information on them. You know, we've three years, 300 plus episodes. I don't think we've ever talked at a bond. Did a bond. Yeah. I mean, we talked about carnival. Yeah. Yeah. And those bonds did really well. Uh-huh. Yeah. So those 11 and a half percent bonds. Yeah. And I guess we did a little bit with Tenneco. Yeah, there you go. But so those are bonds, yeah. Like, yeah, I guess the only actual one could have been Carnival, yeah. Yeah. I mean, my opinion about bonds are, is not popular. I don't think individual investors should ever own U.S. treasuries, other than as cash equivalents. I think it makes no sense to own government bonds ever. Um, in terms of corporate bonds, if you want to own investment-grade corporate bonds as just a way to make money by being out of the stock market, as a regular way of doing it, you know, so for instance, an insurance company, is it appropriate for them to own a lot of uh, investment grade corporate bonds? Sure. It's something to do. It's liquid. You can sell it to some extent. Um, it generates income and it turns into cash eventually over depending on the duration that they buy and stuff. So yeah, it's appropriate for people like that. Um, it gets you if you want to like mix in with not being in stocks. But in general, I think how do you really make returns in bonds is buying junk. So I mean, junk bonds. And the junk bonds have very similar characteristics in some way to stocks. Not exactly the same characteristics, but pretty similar. Um, because a, a big part of your return in stocks is tied to the credit rating of the company. So if you buy stocks purely on the basis of will they become a better credit over time, uh, you'll do really well. You know, if people are misperceiving this business, they're thinking it's risky and really it's a lot less risky. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's mostly through a capital gain that you get, or that's a very significant part of it. I think people who ask about bonds are usually really interested in the yield and the income aspects of it. And you know that that's the thing I worry about the most with talking about people about investing. I think one of the biggest miscalculations people make is relying too much on income yield things that they have saying, well, this is protected. This is guaranteed in some way. Um, and then not paying enough attention to capital gains. So you're taking a much lower yield as opposed to being able to get some real capital gains. You know, and then the other thing is throughout the time I've been investing, unfortunately, has not been a good time for bonds being competitive in yield generally with stocks, with the exception of around 2000 stuff where bonds probably would have outperformed stocks quite a bit. 
Um, and you could have gotten really good yields on them. But that was an environment where I could still find small value things. But if you're managing billions of dollars, it, that would have been a time when it might have been a good opportunity to buy bonds instead of stocks. But anyone mil- managing tens of millions and less certainly could find tons of things to do. I wonder how the 60-40 portfolio has done. Well, uh, that's a good question. Um, well, everything's done pretty badly on a 60-40 basis for the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. compared to market returns because the market returns of stocks haven't been that much better than a bonds during that time. The bond returns, I guess, have been fairly normal uh, from that period. Yeah. The stock returns have been a little lower abnormally that way. Inflation has been a little bit lower, but not much lower. So your real returns probably haven't been that great compared to other periods. Um... I mean, I think, uh, to me, the reason why you don't do it is because you're taking on, I think you're trying to smooth your returns by taking on a huge risk. So if you want any sort of yield, you have to go out a bit in terms of what you buy. You can't buy something that's just like cash. Yeah. And as a result, you're taking huge inflation risk. And you have been for, you know, 20 years, which is fine. Um it may work out, but the return that you're getting is so low that why do it? You know, mm-hmm. um, I think the reason to do it is the smoothness. And I think that's a really big problem. You know, if we had to have another, another thing that I worry about with people doing is one focusing a lot on income on yield, right? They like that a lot and that can get them in trouble. And the other one is they like smooth returns. And if you're willing to accept no income and lumpy returns, you're going to do a lot better. I don't just mean you're going to have higher returns over time, but you're actually going to be able to take less risk sometimes. You can buy less risky things. How you get pushed into a corner of taking too much risk is probably wanting too much income and too much smoothness. So if you're like, I need in my, I, you know, like say now, if you were like, I need 6% a year in income forever, every single year, how do you get that? You get that by taking on a ton of risk right now. Um, and 20 years ago, you would have thought, oh, I could do that. There's ways of figuring out that, that aren't too risky. But then over time, you just go tax free. A little bit more and more risk, yeah. Um, so that's probably a big part of why we don't talk about bonds. I can't imagine that I would ever buy a bond, although there's some situations where they might be uh, good investments, you know. But I also don't know that talking to people, they would buy it and would hold it long enough and all of these sorts of issues. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there may be opportunities sometimes when countries default, um, but these are mostly things that really big investors can do, not individuals. I you know, like defaulted sovereign debt and stuff would be things that certain hedge funds might be able to make a lot of money on. Um, but because eventually they come back to the market. So they have to pay something on the debt. Um, but I just think bonds are sort of not the area that we can cover and add anything of value to. I mean, the one thing that we kind of can, I guess, is um, maybe looking at it from the perspective of the credit stuff. Because I do sometimes have opinions about some company that way and whether it's safe enough. Um, that's about it. Uh, and sometimes it's hard to tell because the bonds might still, because of where you, it's more definitive with a stock, right? So like AMC, for instance, if someone asked me, are AMC, um, is AMC debt a good investment, the movie company, uh, theater? Um, 
that might be harder to figure out. I think that given their current structure, they are definitely not going to be able to make the CapEx they need over time. But could you still get paid on, on your debt and they just let their theaters mm-hmm. uh, crumble? Maybe, yeah. I mean, when I look at it as a as a shareholder, the structure is not sufficient. They're not sufficiently capitalized with the cash flows needed and stuff to make the investments that other theaters they're competing with are going to make. So I would say they lack enough cash flow for the equity. But that might mean that the debt's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, first in line. <laughs> yeah, or it might mean the debt's not okay because remember they the people running the company don't own the debt. Yeah. So, I mean, in a sense, they want to make value for the stock. So you're sometimes at cross purposes with them. That's always another thing. I mean, it is nice that um, the uh, um, with a stock, it's nice that management is on the same side as you and wanting to accomplish something that way. But, you know, on the average, probably the average company, if they issued bonds and uh, they issued stock and you bought and you imagine that you could run that out as long as possible. Now, the, the bonds eventually mature. Uh, I, I would not be surprised if the bond performance does at least as well. So, in other words, lending money to a company, the median company, you probably make more money than being an owner of a co- public company. Public companies, you get most of your turn from the few successful examples. So, the top 10% or so of companies in an index are going to drive like all the return in the index. Whereas you could probably safely lend to large portions of the index at any time. So it might be true that your average company index, you're better off lending to them than you are buying their their um, equity. That might be true. But we kind of try to figure out what few ones we think are better businesses where you'd be happier to own the, the business on an ongoing basis. Yeah, looking at AMC, let's see what their share count is now. Yeah, I don't even know if that's up to date as of now because they've uh, raised a lot. Yeah. Says so the TTM was, well, they, you know, 2019, 104 million, 2020, 216 million. But let's see, what was their cash flows from operations last year? Uh, I mean, not COVID, the year before that, yeah. 579 million. 579 million. And then how much have they been spending in the past on CapEx? 400, 500. All of it. <laughs> if not, yeah, and than, I don't think their the theaters are in better shape than Marcus and Cinemark mm-hmm. in general. I mean, they've, they some of them are great. Some of them are fine. Um, right here, they are basically in line. Um, but I've seen other ones in, in older areas that are not. And so we'll see. But as you can see, before they got into the debt situation that they have now and stuff, they were already in something where I think they were barely covering. Yeah, they were running the gun. I mean, look at this. 2019, And they had debt. Million. They had debt. So yeah. I'm, that's if you pay down the debt, then you can't spend the CapEx without raising more debt. Okay? And that's not with acquisitions either. They might try to acquire things over time. They might, you know. So, but again, I'm not saying the debt, that debt might not get paid at times. Maybe it will. I'm just saying, when I look at the equity, you have too much of an actual cash burden on the company to be able to make the investments you need on a CapEx basis to go forward. And so then you become like a zombie company or whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it, or you have to recapitalize it. Um, and they have recapitalized it. But that's the problem that I see if you compare it to some other companies. I mean, we could do the cash flow uh, for, let's try Cinemark, for instance. Again, that we won't use the most recent year because that's misleading, right? So before that, you had similar amounts of cash flow from operations, lower amounts of CapEx. And then if you look at their balance sheet, 
Um, now, obviously, all these companies lease a lot. If you look at their balance sheet, then you could see what the debt situation is. Um, yeah, they had a lot less debt. Yeah, but then you have COVID and stuff, so it does change things. But I just think that that's the problem that you face. What if they want to really push that? And I think that places like Cinemark and Marcus and stuff do want to push it um, in terms of investing as much as possible in theaters. That's my vision of what theaters are likely to be over time is not necessarily driving a lot more traffic, but monetizing each person more, mm-hmm. which probably means a lot of investment in the best seating and the best screens and the best sound and and redoing some things to sell more other stuff, especially food and beverage. Um, You've already seen that shift too over the past five, 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you'll need even more with COVID the way that it uh, changing people's behavior uh, in terms of just more people being exposed to the idea of buying a movie online and paying a lot for it. Um, that makes it more competitive that way. Mm-hmm. You know? So, I mean, would AMC be interesting to look at debt or something for? Maybe. It's not something that we do. But, it's, you know, so it's more of a cut and dried thing for me. Um, now, the equity could recover a lot, you know, and, and well, it's had its own story with the stock. But <laughs> um, but you could still. Obviously, if, if you had bonds that recovered a lot, then the stock would recover even more. But I'm just looking on a long-term basis whether I think they can make the investments that they need to. And I would be worried with a company like that, that I didn't think they were in a position. I mean, I said before, they blamed on the pandemic. I said I thought they were headed towards yeah. problems anyway. I don't know. Now, those problems could be. seeds before it. Yeah. Now, you could just stop spending on your theaters for a couple of years. Things will deteriorate, but you could do it for a couple of years. I've seen supermarkets do it. And then you can tell people, if you ask people in the local area, because I've read write-ups that people have from other places um, who've never been to that area. And they're like, well, this supermarket trades at the same EV to EBITDA as this. Uh, you know, it should trade at the same one as this one. And it's like, well, you have to walk into each of them and see that one of them looks like everything's from the 1970s. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so that's what's happened. Like the EBITDA thing is that, you know, a new owner will have to invest in this thing. And that could become, you know, what happens with AMC. If it doesn't invest after a few years, then their theaters aren't really worth as much to other people. If others invest and maybe others don't. I don't know. My guess before the pandemic was that others would invest heavily, you know, and so it was going to create a thing like, um, you know, Buffett's talked about with uh, singing your tiptoes at a parade, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. uh, if if one department store puts in air conditioning, every department store has to put it in. Well, you know, as people improve the movie theater situation, you're then forced that, you're forced to do the same. And Adapt so, or die. Yeah. Anyway, so based on the numbers they have now, AMC may be able to make the CapEx they need and... um and also uh, pay interest on their debt. It doesn't seem to me that they can do the CapEx they need and ever pay down any debt. And then anything you acquire, you need to put more debt on it to do that. So it just doesn't seem like a recipe for them ever reducing debt. Mm -hmm. And then debt is not low right now. So, Yeah, it's going to be interesting to follow. I'm surprised that there's been a lot of rumors like Amazon's going to acquire them. That would make a lot of sense. We did a whole podcast where we talked about that. I'm surprised we still haven't heard anything really about that. Yeah, I don't want to be negative on the company. They have a great rewards program thing that they have set up like a loyalty, um, you know, uh, what would you call it? Like a membership thing, mm-hmm. subscription type thing. Um, they have good information, all that stuff. Many of their locations are really good. They obviously would be in a strong position if it does become more of an issue uh, over time, bargaining power with studios and all of that. Obviously, they're not going to get worse deals than anyone else. I don't know if that will or won't be such a big thing, but over time, some people might 
be a little more afraid of very small theaters if antitrust gets more relaxed over time. Um, so it has a lot of appeal as a strategic asset. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. Got it. Cool. Well, I want to thank everyone so much for tuning in with the both of us here today on the Focus Compounding Podcast. 51 minutes in. 51 minutes. If you're still listening, we appreciate you listening to us. If this is the first time you're tuning in, make sure you hit that subscribe button both on YouTube and the podcast side of things. DM me or email me, info at focuscompounding.com. Any sort of topics or questions you would like us to go over on the Freeform Podcast once a week. Um, So make sure you reach out to me. Thank you so much for all the support. We'll see you in the next podcast. Take care.